0: it's time to build your momentum to start off your new year right with our evidence-based psychology and yoga podcast delivered directly to your earbuds five days a week that's right we are going to be replaying 60 of our top episodes five days a week so we're going to be featuring expert insights practical tips that will help you achieve your mental and physical wellness goals From reducing anxiety and stress to improving your focus and concentration, the Wisdom for Wellbeing Momentum Season is the perfect companion for your yoga, mindfulness practices, and life. So tune in during your commute, while you're walking your dog, or while you're cleaning your kitchen to dive into the latest research and explore the powerful connection between your brain, body, and your best life. I'm looking forward to being in your earbuds pretty much daily as we kickstart your 2023 journey towards a happier, healthier, and more balanced you
1: most of your stressors now most of your threats are threats to your self-concept which is to say that there are threats that you perceive to somehow challenge who you are you know who you want to be in this moment or the way you want to be living your life
0: You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis.
1: Hi there. Welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Today, we are talking about mindful self-compassion, what it is, and why it's important for your emotional well-being. It's a bit of an unusual format today because I did record this as a Facebook Live first. My intention behind that was to offer a visual component and a live component for individuals who really resonate with that format of delivery. However, I always had the intentionality of it being a podcast episode, so I hope that you'll find that you are not dependent on the slides to understand mindfulness, self-compassion, and that you enjoy a couple of practices at the end that actually talk you through the cultivation of self-compassion. To help you with this, there is also a guidebook. So if you don't already have it, you can find that if you head on over to the show notes at wisdomforwellbeingpodcast.com. I know that's a little bit different than usual. I normally say drkatelyn.com, but try wisdomforwellbeingpodcast.com, and that's going to be specifically devoted to all things around wisdom, well-being, and of course, accessing that handy mindfulness self-compassion guidebook. All right without further ado, here's the live. Hi there. Welcome to our first live masterclass. Well, Technically, it is the second, the first one I didn't give any announcement about. So this is the first live masterclass where I announced it beforehand. Today, we are talking about mindful self-compassion. This is a topic that is very dear to my heart because I truly feel that mindfulness and self-compassion are two skills that we could all benefit from in cultivating well-being for ourselves, both psychological as well as physical physiological, as you'll hear more about as we go on today. So to start things off, why does this matter? What's the big deal about mindfulness and self-compassion? Well, the research shows that human beings, you know, like yourself, like myself, have something called the negativity bias. So this means that we are predisposed to notice the negative in our surroundings. Our mind really focuses on the negatives more than the positives for an evolutionary reason. Your ancestors were not the ones who saw a shadow and thought, oh, I should go investigate that. Your ancestors were the ones who saw a shadow and thought, crap, I need to get to the cave. That could be a tiger or a jaguar or something, something that could have put them in danger. This means that your ancestors were then much more likely to reproduce and go on and pass their genes down to you. So essentially, our society is predisposed to anxiety, predisposed to ruminating thinking about negative things that have happened in the past, because again, your ancestors would be the ones that learned, oh, when I ate that specific flower, I got really sick after, I'm going to have to remember not to do that again. Or, oh, that was really quite risky. When I tried to jump across the river, I slipped and I fell. I'll have to find a different way around next time. So the minds that we have today are looking forward to the future, planning what could go wrong and looking what happened in the past that didn't go so well and thinking about that a bit. So what we know then is that at current, depression has become the leading cause of the global burden of disease. So a mental health disorder like depression has I guess, grown over the years. Because it was a number of years ago where this was predicted, but it wasn't actually the case. So sure, there's an evolutionary component, but there's also some societal components. You know, There's certain ways that we treat ourselves, that we learn to treat ourselves, as well as certain structures in our society that are probably not so conducive to mental health and well-being. We'll talk about some of those today. But I just wanted to highlight another really important fact that it's often the case, when we look at a trajectory, if someone experiences a really high level of stress, And they are then much more likely to go on and develop clinical levels of anxiety, and then much more likely from there to experience a depressive episode. So the fact that depression has become this leading cause of the global burden of disease actually, to me, sort of highlights the fact that there is so much stress that we are experiencing, so much suffering that we are experiencing on a day-to-day basis that we are much more vulnerable now than maybe a couple of generations. Ago might have experienced. So, what is suffering? Well, suffering is an experience of real pain, you know, real, real sorrow. And I mean pain in a very specific sense. So pain is something that's said to be invo- uh, in a part of me that is said to be unavoidable. Pain is part of the human condition. You know, we will all experience uncomfortable emotions. You know, you'll experience the emotion of shame, of sadness, of guilt of frustration, worry, anxiety, anger, you will experience all of these emotions in your life. Emotions are messengers. They tell you something is going on in your life that needs attention that maybe doesn't feel quite right to you. You can also experience physical pain. You know, we could be looking at an ache in your shoulder or a headache or, you know, you stub your finger on something. You know, pain can be both emotional and physical, but we're talking here primarily about emotional pain and the concept of resistance, because what often happens when we experience an uncomfortable emotion, we start to resist it. You know, we might start to challenge ourselves. We might start to think, oh my gosh, what is wrong with me? Or we might think, oh my goodness, I absolutely cannot handle this. Like this is not something that I'm going to be able to tolerate, So when we have that experience, we start to increase the pain because our mind starts to then dwell on it. We start to experience suffering because we're resisting it. Does this sort of make sense? There's other ways of resisting as well. You know, it might be the case that you turn to isolation, you know, duvet diving, hiding yourself away from friends, from family members, moving into a state of, you know, numbing even, be it through drugs or alcohol or massive Netflix consumption. All of these things are ways of resisting what you are feeling in the moment. So there's a really interesting equation. It goes like this pain times resistance equals suffering. So the suffering then is born out of the resistance to pain, which means Pain is something you will experience, it's inevitable. The suffering then becomes optional. It's not necessarily something that you will experience. Most of us, I think, will acknowledge that we experience suffering in our lives, but we can get better at noticing when we're resisting and then starting to do some of the practices that we'll talk about today to help soothe and to help experience that raw emotion in a nurturing manner so there's actually less resistance. I'll talk about the story of the second arrow, which I think captures this really well, but I just also wanted to highlight the idea that. Emotions, the physical experience of emotions, because let's face it, it is a physical experience. You know, taking the emotion of anxiety as an example, we all know that anxiety is this real rush, this physical sensation in the body, this warmth, the heart rate going, the breathing picking up. It's a physical experience. The physical experience of these emotions is thought to last between 60 and 90 seconds. The thing is that then the resistance jumps in because in that 60 to 90 seconds, you might feel so uncomfortable with this emotion that you start to move into fight, flight, or freeze mode, and then your brain starts to I guess ruminate or challenge or engage in other behavior that actually then increases the suffering. So the pain for sure, if you were able to just step back and sit with it, 60 to 90 seconds. If you had, let's say, a pain that was, you know, 10 and you resisted it a hundredfold, really, really did not want to feel this emotion of, let's say, guilt over having cut someone off in traffic let's say you really really resisted it because you were thinking gosh you know I say I'm such a good driver I'm such a patient person what's happening to me I can't believe I did this this is so horrible if your resistance was at a 10 then suddenly that pain that might have been at a 10 this suffering becomes a hundred If you were experiencing that pain, that sense of guilt, you noticed it in your body, it's pretty uncomfortable and it was at a 10 and you didn't resist it at all, your suffering is at a 10. That's seemingly much more manageable. So the story of the second arrow, which I think captures this quite elegantly, is from the arrow sutra. So it's a story from the Buddha. It goes like this. When hit with discomfort... The conventional reaction is to whine and regret. Kick oneself, take it hard. So we feel two afflictions. One, the inevitable physical feelings, a first arrow the world blasts us with. And two, the additional mental reactions, the second arrow we shoot ourselves We may fail to note any relief or escape from uncomfortable feelings, the first arrow, other than to distract ourselves with sensual pleasures, so we cling to diversions, rather than observing what is actually present, the arising and passing of feelings. And this is what I'm going to talk to you today, how you can learn to sit with the arising and the passing of feelings ways that you can make room for those uncomfortable feelings that arise out of the first arrow. The fight or flight response is something that we evolved to, you know, when we talked earlier about how the negativity bias is an evolutionary experience. So is the fight or flight response. And the reason I'm highlighting that now is because it's essentially the fight or flight response that is bringing out that original emotional pain. So the fight or flight response is this threat system. you notice something in your environment, and let's say it is a tiger. So you want to fight that tiger, or you want to flee from that tiger. Or if you cannot do either, then you want to freeze so that maybe for some reason, the tiger drags you away but goes to get its cubs and you can get up and run away or worst case scenario very worst case scenario the tiger may eat you but then you're not really there which is a better state to be in than the alternative so the fight-or-flight response is related to your sympathetic nervous system The sympathetic nervous system kicks in and it starts to increase the blood flow to your arms and to your legs so that you can run away. Your heart starts to pump really fast to be able to send that oxygenated blood to these areas and you start to breathe more because you've actually got to get more oxygen and more breath into the system to be able to fuel this interestingly, blood actually starts being diverted from your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that allows your really high level thinking. And that blood starts to go to your arms and your legs because you do not need to do math sums when you are escaping from a tiger. Also, blood from your stomach that would help you digest your food, you know, that you might have been relaxed eating in the morning starts to be diverted to your arms and legs as well because you do not need to be eating your, you know, digesting your breakfast when you are trying to save your life. So consequently, while this system makes total sense, if you are escaping from a tiger, If the threat, if the threat system comes online because you've got an image in your mind of a difficult interaction you're expecting with your boss or that you have had in the past, that system actually isn't that helpful, particularly if suddenly your boss is standing in front of you and you can't think clearly and you're feeling this warmth in your body and you're feeling this urge to run or to evacuate your bowels, it's not actually that helpful in showing up how you would like to show up in your life. So as you can see, while this evolutionary response might have made sense in the past, most of your stressors now, most of your threats are threats to your self-concept, which is to say that there are threats that you perceive to somehow challenge who you are, you know, who you want to be in this moment or the way you want to be living your life. Does that make sense? Great. So moving on from here, I would like to describe to you mindfulness, because mindfulness is something that you've probably heard a lot about. If it's not something that you've practiced, it's something a lot of us are recognizing is really, really helpful for our emotional well-being, as well as our physical well-being. A practice of mindfulness has been shown to be really helpful in, you know, I guess chronic conditions like chronic pain, you know, heart disease. It's been found to be really helpful for individuals experiencing um, stressors like even cancer. So, in regards to how it helps emotionally, it's been shown that people who practice mindfulness regularly report decreased stress reactivity and an increased sense of well being. Mindfulness is, I think, really elegantly described by Jon Kabat-Zinn. This is the definition he uses. The awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. So there's some key points there. It's paying attention. It's noticing on purpose. Noticing on purpose in the present moment. So right here, right now, and non-judgmentally. The mind is so quick to jump in with judgments, to label things, to challenge things, and it is actually really, really helpful if we can practice a non-judgmental stance and we would like to add to this as well a kindly attention. So paying attention in a kind way because that kind stance is much less likely to predispose you to then moving into a state of judgment. But it's also the case that it sets you up for then the practice of self-compassion, which we'll talk to later. Now, why would it be the case that mindfulness is important? Well, being able to slow down, to tune in, allows you to then make deliberate moves towards the future you wanna create, to be the person you wanna create. I'm just going to flick back those of you who are watching this live to the previous slide around the threat system, because I'm going to tell a bit of a story about what happened to some seminary students. First, though, I want to give you a bit of an understanding as to what might have been going on for them. So when we talk about the fight or flight response, we talked about what happens in our system physically, and we talked about what happens when there might be a tiger in the environment or just an image of a threat now. The way the threat system often comes up is if you feel triggered, if there is a threat to your sense of self, your self-concept, the fight mode might now for you look like self-judgment. So starting to criticize yourself, oh, of course you did that. You stuffed it up again. Why didn't you slow down? Why didn't you let that person cut into your lane? Why didn't you speak up when the boss said X? Why didn't you remember to double check that spreadsheet? All of these self-criticisms, this sort of bully attack mode, it turns on yourself when you are in a fight mode. The flight mode looks more like isolation. So duvet diving is how I've heard it termed really moving into this shame state. And as such, feeling really icky and consequently disconnecting from others. There might be people who are trying to call you or text you or reach out to you. And as you move into this flight mode, you're really shutting that off. Whereas the freeze mode might look like getting really caught, hooked on some of those thoughts that are about things that have happened in the past. So we would call this rumination, chewing over events that you would judge perhaps negatively or were uncomfortable or painful for you. So it's a bit of a cycle where you're thinking about... not Not what's amazing about you, but why you're unworthy, why you're not good enough, why you're somehow defective. So the freeze response is getting caught in this cycle. So this is why the practice of mindfulness is so useful. It helps you notice when you get caught in these cycles. It also helps you slow down. The Seminary Students is a story of an experiment that took place at Princeton University where this young group were asked to give a speech on the Good Samaritan. So, you know, first-year seminary students asked to give a speech on the Good Samaritan, a sermon, and they were told to go home and to practice it. So undoubtedly, those students would have gone home and practiced it all night, really learning about how they articulate, how they share what it is to be a Good Samaritan. And then they head to campus the next morning, probably quite nervous, like we would all be, but eager to give their speech on what it means to be a good Samaritan. However, they did not know that they were in an experiment. So the person they meet, their teacher, tells them, look, you've got to race to the other side of campus really quickly. You are late and they're not going to wait for you. So the students in this condition head off across campus really quickly and what happens is that someone else who's a part of the experiment, an actor, falls down in front of each one of them and says, ow, ow, like I'm hurt, I need your help. And 100% of the seminary students off to give a sermon on what it means to be a good Samaritan ran right past this individual asking for their help interestingly the other group of students met with their teacher in the morning who said similar things you know you are late you've got to get to the other side of campus but added in something else don't worry they'll wait for you it will be okay so then they go to head across campus running along and again the actor falls down in front of them saying ow ow i'm hurt can you help me and they stop They act as a good Samaritan and they help this person. Now, there would have been nothing different about either of those groups of students. They would have had the same hearts, similar values, similar intentions on that morning. But one of them was given permission to slow down and to tune in. This experience of slowing down and tuning in allowed them to then make a decision that would have arguably connected them with their higher sense of self, with what was important to them in that moment. This is where I think self-compassion comes in. Because when an individual was taking off across campus, and probably like you or I, you know, when we are pressed for time and, you know, an older family member rings us, or when we are pressed for time and someone is trying to cut into our lane in traffic, we may not be being our best self. We might be caught in that fight mode, that flight mode, or even sometimes a freeze mode. Imagine if we could tune in with kindly attention to what was going on for us and actually, like that teacher did for the seminary students, offer a bit of compassion. You know, it's going to be okay. They'll wait for you. It'll be okay. Allowing yourself to be kind to yourself, the way that you would be to another person that you love in your life. The quote from the Buddha You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe deserve your love and affection. Do you give yourself that love and affection? Maybe not, maybe sometimes. What's important here is that it's something that can be practiced. When we move into that state of suffering, when we are resisting our pain, it is a really, really important practice to nurture yourself, to be kind to yourself in a moment, and also to notice that you are suffering, to notice that you've moved into that state of suffering. There's a really nice definition by Kristin Neff around what self-compassion means. She describes it as being open to and moved by one's suffering experiencing feelings of caring and kindness toward oneself, taking an understanding, non-judgmental attitude towards one's inadequacies and failures, and recognizing that one's own experience is part of the common human experience. Have a think as to how that definition of self-compassion resonated with you. It's interesting that there's a lot of overlap with mindfulness. Mindfulness is one of the key components of self-compassion because you have to actually notice that you're suffering. And with that kindly intention of mindfulness, perhaps then allowing yourself to be moved by your own experience of suffering and starting to then feel caring and kindness towards yourself. The interesting thing about self-compassion is it also highlights that it's okay to have inadequacies and failures that we can actually be non-judgmental about that. You probably like myself grew up in a time where there was a lot of talk around how important self-esteem was. This idea that you needed to be, you know, the top of the top to feel good about yourself and that that would bring you a sense of well-being. The thing is, if anyone calls you average, could that perhaps feel like a bit of a sting? When in fact, you know, most of us have to be average. We can't all be above average at all things. That's not realistic. We are going to have moments of inadequacies and moments of failure, like one of the seminary students running past someone who needed their help. It wouldn't have been a proud moment. You know, similarly, if I don't let someone in in traffic or if I snap at someone I care about, it's not a proud moment, but it is part of being human. Suffering is something we will all experience. There is no one on this planet who has not suffered. And there is no one on this planet who does not regularly experience pain, emotional and physical. It is a part of this condition, and in that way, if we can tune in with that, it's actually very connecting. There is nothing so wrong with you that you somehow do not deserve the same love and affection that everyone else on the planet does. There is nothing so flawed with you that you do not deserve love and compassion When you look and connect in with your friends, with your family members, with people close to your heart, I bet when they're suffering, you get it. Even if they've done something wrong, you get that feeling of suffering and you respond with kindness. So this is going to be the practice of turning it back on yourself. One story that I do just want to quickly highlight here that those of you who might be from America or Canada might connect in with uh, is because it's from an Archie comic, which I've learned over my time in Australia is not actually a thing here. But these comic books tell the story of Archie and his group of friends, and in that group of friends, there are two girls, Betty and Veronica. They are friends, but they're also rivals for Archie's love interest. Betty is the girl next door. You know, she's framed as this person who has it all together, who's really kind, really considerate, doesn't make any mistakes. In one comic, Betty drops a tray of drinks that she's carrying, and she starts to be hard on herself. You know, how did you drop that? Oh, you're such a fool. You're so clumsy. You've really gone and stuffed it up now. Veronica actually says to her, oh my goodness, I like you so much more now. She really tunes in and connects in with Betty because when we see someone else's humanness, it allows us to unite. It's this common thread. When we see someone as perfect, it's actually really, really difficult to connect with them, to see ourselves in them. And that's why one of the societal influences that a lot of people would argue, argue might be contributing to this increased experience of mental health difficulties, including that depression burden that we talked about earlier, is what's going on with social media right now. We see a highlight reel. What we are seeing is not real. All of the marketing that hits us on our phones, on our TVs, in those magazines, on those billboards, really thrives on telling us what is wrong with us that we need to buy something to make ourselves feel better or be better or somehow fit in. So knowing that we are actually all suffering, that we're all modeling through this together, can actually be really helpful. And if you can practice reminding yourself of that, you might find that it's very beneficial it's actually so beneficial that it starts to change what's going on for you at a biological level. There's been some really big studies on different meditators who practice, for instance, loving kindness meditation, amongst other types of meditation. And there's actually changes in their brain that starts to happen as a result of this and over prolonged experiences with meditation. For instance, the insula starts to increase in size. So the insula is a part of your brain that's very connected with empathy, being able to empathize and connect in with another individual. And if you are able to see yourself, which is empathy, in someone else, that actually leads to much more pro-social behavior. So for instance, if someone, you know, in front of you kind of said, ouch, I'm hurt, I need help, and you're seeing yourself in them, your insula is lighting up, chances are you're going to really help that person. You're going to be there for them. Your emotional responses change. You know, if you are resisting your emotional experiences, those feelings of emotional pain, Again, suffering increases and you would be more likely to be vulnerable to or to experience mental health ails. Whereas with a regular practice of mindfulness and self-compassion, individuals report much less symptomatology associated with mental health conditions. Interestingly, when I was highlighting that self-compassion can be really nurturing, some people say, oh no, 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 like I need to beat myself up to get results. Like if I just said, oh no, it's okay, darling, you're okay right now don't worry, it seems like you need a break. Let's put away the textbooks and let's curl up with a cup of tea that that would mean that I wouldn't achieve. When in actual fact, people who have a strong practice of mindfulness and self-compassion seem to achieve more both academically and vocationally. And this makes sense. If you think of a toddler, I have a toddler at home right now and my toddler is learning how to walk and it does not look easy. Hence, it's called toddling. It takes a lot of focus to take one step and then another. And there's a lot of falling down that happens, both falling on the butt and there's been a few phase plans. If we said to her, oh my goodness, you really stuffed that up. Gosh, why can't you just work harder? And our voice started to go to the tone that I know your internal critic would as well as mine. Would that little girl want to get up and try again? If we say, oh my goodness, look at you go, you are doing your best, ouch. Yeah, that one would have been painful. I'm here with you. I'm here with you now. Chances are she's going to keep trying, walking, toddling, and she's going to keep going with it. The thing is, with her falling down, with her having moments of suffering and tears, I sit with her and am with her in those moments of distress because she is suffering. I'm not trying to push her to get over it to get on with it, I'm there with her because she's suffering. And this is what you'll practice when you practice self-compassion, is not practicing self-compassion for yourself in order to get through this uncomfortable experience and get on with it and go and achieve something. You're going to be practicing compassion for yourself simply because you're suffering and you deserve to be kind to yourself in these moments of suffering. Again, as much as anyone deserves that. Sometimes our history can really influence how we show up. So our history informs our view of the world. And I think it can be quite empowering to understand why we have certain reactions that other people may not have to certain situations. For instance, if you grew up in a family that left you feeling rejected or defective in some way. Let's say there was a lot going on for your family. You know, perhaps finances were really, really tight and mom and dad were working to put food on the table and just couldn't be there in the way that they might have loved to have been there for you. As a child, we do not have the cognitive capacity to look at situationally what's happening. Oh, mom and dad are actually doing an amazing job working super hard to get food on the table. We just see mom and dad are always racing out the door. They seem vague at the end of the night. They're not responding to me. There must be something wrong with me. Nobody's ever going to love me. I'm always going to be rejected. I'm not going to fit in. So that belief might've developed in childhood. And then when you enter perhaps another relationship, you already have this sense that there's something wrong with you and you're going to be rejected. So you might go into the relationship, keeping a bit of a wall up, anticipating those texts that are coming, reading into them as signs of rejection and responding accordingly. And that may not help the relationship grow and develop and really move and bloom, which means that the relationship might end as a failure. It might end in you again, feeling rejection, feeling like there's something wrong with you, which further substantiates or leads to this belief that you are you know, defective that you are not going to be able to have a relationship where someone is fully present with you. So it creates this vicious cycle. So doing a bit of work, spending a bit of time, understanding, connecting in with your history and the beliefs that might have been developed. Just understand here that a belief is not a truth. I'm saying truth with a capital T. It is not in this case necessarily true, That there is anything wrong with you apart from being, you know, imperfectly human, which we all are. And it's not necessarily true that your partner is, or your friends, or your co-workers, that they are going to reject you. But just understanding where that belief came from and why you might be vulnerable to it, because you might notice it comes up. And if you have that awareness of your history, you can go, oh, it's this story again. And then think back to that little person that you once were and think how you could be kind to her. You know, how could you be kind to a five-year-old, a six-year-old? I bet you would be very compassionate to an individual, a little individual experiencing distress. When you might be aware of what's going on for you, you might be able to more easily practice self-compassion. There are two different self-compassion exercises that I wanted to introduce you to today. One of them is a self-compassion break that involves three steps and it's been developed by Dr. Kristen Knaff. The other one is called RAIN, that's an acronym, the RAIN of Self-Compassion, and it was developed by Dr. Tara Brach. Now, you've heard about RAIN in a previous episode with Nellie Martin, so if you were curious about that, we'll be going through that just after this one. In regards to this self-compassion break, if you have the capacity to practice this right now, even if you're driving, keep your eyes open, but join in. Have a think of a moment where you've recently suffered. You know, maybe if you're driving, it was a few moments ago when you got a red light. Maybe it was a text message you received or you didn't receive. Maybe it was the tone someone spoke to you about with, or maybe it's something you're imagining for tomorrow or the day after or something that happened in the past. And allow yourself to notice and acknowledge that this is a moment of suffering. You might even like to label the emotion that you're experiencing. There's a saying, name it to tame it. You know, this is a moment of suffering. I'm experiencing frustration. This is a moment of suffering. I'm experiencing grief. This is a moment of suffering. I'm experiencing anxiety and worry about my future. And then connect in with all of us. Connect in with the universality of this experience. Acknowledge to yourself right now that suffering is universal that you are human. You are experiencing suffering, emotional pain, precisely because you are a human being and may you feel connected to myself, to all beings in this moment. And then make a gesture of loving kindness to yourself, be it putting your hands on your heart, If that feels a little bit weird or not natural for you, maybe do a little hand hug, bringing your hands, palms together. Maybe if you have a piece of jewelry that is sentimental to you, rub it. Whatever feels like an acknowledgement of self-compassion, a gesture of self-compassion, And then saying to yourself, may I be kind to myself in this moment. May I be kind to myself in this moment. This might look different to you. You might like to even, you know, notice, suggest what you could do to be kind to yourself. Maybe being kind to yourself right now is simply acknowledging that this is really hard, that this is a tough moment. You might like to think what you would do for a friend or a family member, for a pet, or you might like to think what someone you really care about and respect, someone who treats you really well, what they would do for you. It might be making you a cup of tea, sitting with you for a moment, or it could be something more dynamic. It could be saying no to a commitment, to a person, that is not healthful for you right now or that you don't have the space for right now. It doesn't always have to be something slow, but it might be. Notice how you feel in these moments being with yourself. And know that you can come back to this practice. I'll be sending out a workbook to go with this masterclass to my mailing list on Wednesday. So if that's something you'd like, feel free to sign up at wisdomforwellbeingpodcast.com. You might also like to try the RAIN of self-compassion. So RAIN is an acronym, and that stands for Recognize, Allow, Investigate, and Nurture. So recognizing is the first step. Again, using your mindfulness skills. Notice what's happening. The thoughts, the feelings, the bodily sensations. Perhaps again, naming to tame. This is a feeling of shame. You know, this is a heaviness. This is guilt. And allow the experience to be here. Practicing this kindly attention and just observing the emotions, feelings, and sensations that you're having without trying to change them, to move them, to fix them. Moving into this state of what I'll call the observing self, perhaps, if that's a word or language that's helpful for you, which just means this part of you that observes, that notices what arises, what falls. What is here with you over the course of time? And then start to investigate. Kindly exploring what you might be experiencing, notice where in your body sensation might be arising. Notice what stories the mind might be telling you. And notice if you believe them. You might believe them. Then you might question are they true? True with a capital T, and start to consider what this vulnerable part of you, you know, if we think back to that little child, what they might need in this moment, or if we think of a friend or a pet, and then start to nurture with self-compassion. Recognize your own suffering in this moment, and perhaps making a gesture or an action that gives yourself a kindly message of compassion. So like we did in the step before in that self-compassion break, taking gentle action, be it acknowledging what you need in this moment or something more active, a deliberate action, be it a thought, a talking connection with oneself, or maybe something that you need to do in your environment. These two practices offer a lot of overlap. Some of us tend to connect in more with the three-step mindful break, and some of us might prefer this reign of self-compassion. Whatever resonates with you is perfect, and modify it to suit what feels good for you and feels good in the sense that it's not going to wipe away the pain that you might be experiencing, but that feels nourishing, that feels nurturing. So I spoke to this concept of the observing self, and I guess as we get to the end of today's conversation, I just wanted to share with you a metaphor that I find really helpful in regards to connecting in with this part of myself that I call the observing self. The metaphor is of the sky. The sky can hold all weather patterns. It can hold thunder showers. It can hold blizzards. It can hold tsunamis. It can hold rainbows. It can hold sunshine. It can hold all the weather patterns and it's something that sits behind these weather patterns. The sky is always there. The weather patterns are those emotions, those sensations, those experiences you have that arise and fall. And sure, there might be seasons. There might be seasons where there are more rainy days than there are sunny days. And there might be seasons where there are more sunny days than there are snowstorms but each day can be different. Each weather pattern can be different. And the sky has the capacity to hold it all. Like you have the capacity to hold it all, to make space for it all, to expand. And when I practice a formal meditation practice, which is sitting down or, you know, yoga, I do like to think, can I expand myself emotionally? Can I make room for this? And then I bring that into my self-compassion practice. I imagine an expansiveness coming out that can hold all of these uncomfortable feelings that makes it easier to not try and push to fade and to fix these experiences to not move into that state of resistance mindfulness is going to be crucial to develop and mindfulness doesn't have to be sitting down on a meditation cushion or doing like a physical practice like yoga or tai chi mindfulness can be done when you're doing the dishes. Practicing that non-judgmental, that kindly attention, being present in that moment. Does that make sense? Beautiful. So perhaps connect in with your observing self, this part of you that accepts the weather patterns, the emotional, sensational experiences that arise. Practicing that acceptance, because again, all of this is practice, not perfect, and when you notice that you are caught in a moment of suffering, practice moving into a state of self compassion, nurturing your self compassion practice. If this was useful to you, if you liked seeing the slides, if you're watching it live right now, please let me know and I can try and do more master classes like this to suit topics that you feel would be beneficial. If you're listening right now in podcast format, I see you as well. I love podcasts because I can listen to them anywhere. Please, if you did benefit from today's masterclass, or if you've benefited from the episodes of Wisdom for Wellbeing that you've been listening to, I would love if you could just take a couple of minutes and leave a review on iTunes. You do that by just double tapping the Wisdom for Wellbeing icon on your screen. It would be really helpful to get the word out and to allow others to connect in with tools that will help support their lives their wisdom and their well being, because ultimately our world will be amazing when we can all slow down, check in, and operate from our best sense of self. Then we're all going to be those good Samaritans helping those people along our path that need a few extra moments from us. On Facebook, at Wisdom for Wellbeing or at Dr. Caitlin. Please join me there or send an email with any feedback that you have about this or other episodes. I'd love to connect. So it's hello at Dr.
0: Caitlin. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect Find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating, or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for well being
1: is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of
0: Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.